You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. According to a study published in the International Journal of Eating Disorders, 30% of patients with bulimia and over 60% of patients with anorexia encountered a worsening of symptoms during the pandemic. Here, the Royal College of Pediatricians and Child Health have reported a huge rise in the cases of anorexia nervosa, a situation all too familiar to former Emmerdale actress Gemma Oten, manager of the eating disorders patient support charity, SEED. The demand for us is astronomical. Our out of area referrals, bearing in mind we're a whole based charity, we help people all around the UK, but out of area people are coming to us and that's gone up by 116%. And I think the one that breaks my heart in terms of statistics, it's 10 to 19 year olds, 68% increase. Gemma, what do you believe is contributing to the rise in cases? An eating disorder is about control and every single person with an eating disorder is an individual and their reasons for presenting an eating disorder are specific to them. However, control is a massive thing and we're living in a moment in our lives where we can't control anything. We say it's like a pressure cooker of being in lockdown is absolutely magnifying those who are presenting signs of an eating disorder, those who are already had an eating disorder and are struggling and those who just feel completely isolated and lost. And it's not just anorexia, it's bulimia, it's binge eating, it's overeating. Food is the symptom, it's not the cause. But unfortunately, there are ramifications around food and what we do to our bodies in a way of self-harm. And one in five people with an eating disorder will die as a direct result or by taking their own life. I know from talking to you off microphone how important it is for people living with or affected by eating disorders to be able to get support and to talk. I understand that's how SEED, the eating disorder patient charity your patron and manager of, came about. It was set up by my wonderful parents whilst I was in the grips of anorexia. Unfortunately, when my anorexia developed at the age of 10, when I initially went to the doctor with mum and dad's support, I was turned away from the doctor being told that I wasn't low enough in weight to have a problem. Cut to a year and a half later, I'm in a children's adolescent psychiatric unit on bed rest and told if I don't eat in 24 hours, I'll be dead. And if I don't drink, I'll be dead quicker. Sadly, that was the shape of my life for 13 years. You know, how mum and dad kept together through some of the hardest times I've ever been through is testament to their love for each other. But not all families are as close as ours and are as strong as our bond. And mum and dad were like, there must be so many families going through this. And so mum being mum, whilst I was in hospital, <laughs> decided she was going to set up a support group and put a helpline in our living room. <laughs> and thus began seed. And it's just gone from strength to strength. We've got email buddy schemes, text buddy schemes, support groups, albeit online at the moment. And those are for carers, for sufferers, for carers and sufferers. We see ourselves as not a clinical service, but we are always governed medically by the professional and we see ourselves as that charity that bridges the gap between those who are waiting for treatment and can't get access to services because we never want any family to go through what we did. Finally, Gemma, with things as they are, what advice would you offer to people supporting somebody going through their journey towards recovery? One of the big key messages that we deliver at SEED is it's about the person. Don't forget who your loved one is. They're not just an eating disorder because what can happen is you can get sucked into this world and this void and this is where an eating disorder is very, very clever. It is so destructive. If we talk about it as an external 
thing. We know it's a mental health illness, but it's the best way to describe that it's just like this inner monster. And the thing it can do for the eating disorder is to destroy everything around it. So one of the biggest pieces of advice we give is to remember the loved one. When I was going through it, you know, mum and dad would talk to me as me as a person, as Gemma, as their daughter. If things started to get irate and if arguments started to escalate, I know it sounds a bit daft, but we'd all hold our hand up and go, well, we are not letting the eating disorder tear us apart. Let's just take five and we'll come back and we'll start again. And then we'd come back together, we'd apologise, we'd say, I love you, and we'd say each other's names, like, I love you, Mum, and then, I love you, Gemma, so that you remember what is at the heart of your family. It's not the illness. It sounds so simple, but it's so effective. For further information on this story, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Throughout the years, the damage we do walking on hard surfaces and wearing the wrong shoes for too long can impact on our ability to enjoy life, as Lorraine Jones from the Society of State Registered Chiropodists and Podiatrists explains. If you have an area in your foot that hurts, you alter the way you walk to accommodate the pain, which puts pressure and stresses on other joints like the knees and the hips and the back. You become less mobile, so you lose a degree of your independence because you have to become dependent on other people to do things for you. Lorraine, research shows that the majority of adult foot problems begin in childhood with studies suggesting that around 90% of children have problems with their shoes and feet. So what approach should parents adopt? Children before they're walking don't need any footwear. Their limbs need to be unrestricted so that their muscles can develop normally. If their feet are cold, it's nice loose little socks or of course the all-in-one outfits are quite good. Only put them in footwear when they are walking outside unless of course the child has systemic problems like diabetes or health issues. So So if the child's fit and healthy, don't stick shoes on them. They don't need it. The body develops beautifully without them. And the other thing is, when you do start buying shoes for the child, have them fitted by a trained fitter or get some advice because not every shoe shop where children's shoes are sold will fit them properly. And keep checking their shoes because children grow in quite interesting spurts. So the shoes may fit for a little while and then all of a sudden they don't. Okay, so that's the kids covered. But what tips can you pass on to adults to lessen the burden on their feet? Never wear the same shoes for more than one day in a row because they don't dry out overnight. Wash the feet every day. Cream them, but not in between the toes. If you get a little bit sweaty, surgical spirit in between the toes or use the underarm antiperspirant deodorant sprays to help reduce sweating. And always make sure that you wear the right shoe for the job because if you do that, you'll allow the maximum ability for the foot to work as an effective a way as possible. Because if you have the wrong shoe for the job, something that slip on, a tight toe box, it doesn't allow the foot to work properly. You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Spring is in the air and it's a time traditionally associated with fertility and campaigners urging all sexually active women who might be planning to be pregnant or who are in the early stages of pregnancy to take the correct dose of folic acid, crucial to the development of healthy fetuses during pregnancy. As GP and medical journalist Dr Rob Hicks explains. Each year in the UK around 900 pregnancies are affected by neural tube defects and of course the one that everybody recognises is spina bifida 
And what is problematic with this condition is it leaves the child with problems with their spine. It might be with their mobility, with their bowel and bladder control, with more challenges than one would hope that a child would have to face in their life. Rob, I understand folate levels are low by international standards here in the UK, and sadly, the incidence of neural tube defects remains stubbornly high. Simply taking a daily dose of folic acid can significantly reduce the number of pregnancies being affected by neural tube defect by around 72%. We recommend that women take 400 micrograms of folic acid every day, not just during the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, but actually from a few months before they even start to try and fall pregnant. And the reason for this is to make sure that they get the levels of folic acid in their body ready. And also because many women fall pregnant really quite quickly after starting to try it. For many, it takes months, but some fall pretty much immediately. So you need to have those levels of folic acid there ready. Can't women get enough of it from a good, healthy diet? Green leafy vegetables, Brussels sprouts, spinach, very good sources of folic acid. So we can get folic acid from the diet, but not enough. I understand that the supplementary dosage of folic acid women should take prior to and during the early stages of pregnancy can differ. We talk about 400 micrograms of folic acid a day for the majority of women. For some women, they need to take 5 milligrams per day. And this is if they're in a high-risk group who've had a previous pregnancy affected by neural tube defect. If the woman or her partner has a spinal cord defect, if the woman is taking a medication for epilepsy, or if she has a condition like celiac disease or diabetes. So it is important that a woman checks with her doctor which is the appropriate dose for her to take. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Progressive supernuclear palsy, or PSP for short, is a thankfully rare terminal degenerative brain disease that's more common in the over 60s. It affects anywhere between four to 10,000 people across the UK and it struggles to get the awareness it deserves. Paula McGrath is from the PSP Association. The early symptoms may be a loss of balance and unexpected falls, usually backwards, stiffness and eye problems. People can also experience difficulties in looking up or down. They may struggle to focus or have double or tunnel vision. We often see behavioural and cognitive changes as well, and this could be depression, apathy and mood swings. Because it's a degenerative disease, they worsen in time. But it's important to recognise that symptoms and the progression is different in everyone, so they don't always happen in the same order or at the same speed. How about diagnosing PSP? Sadly, PSP is often undiagnosed particularly in the elderly and those who are living in care homes. There aren't any simple tests to diagnose PSP, unfortunately. Early on, the symptoms may resemble other diseases, such as Parkinson's, Alzheimer's or motor neurone disease, so it can be quite difficult to get a firm diagnosis. Why is increased awareness of progressive supernuclear palsy, or PSP as it's otherwise known, so important? Awareness with the general public means that the needs of people with PSP will be greater recognised. But most importantly, awareness within the health and social care profession will mean that people with PSP get the care and support that they need in order to achieve the highest quality of life possible. I understand that there's nothing we can do to prevent the onset of PSP, the causes are unknown and that there is no cure. What about treatments? There are no effective specific treatments as such for PSP, but there are many therapies and services that can help people. For example, speech and language therapy and occupational therapy. There are some medications that can also help to alleviate symptoms. 
I know from experience that being diagnosed and living with a rare degenerative disease can be very isolating for both the sufferer and their family, and that your organisation exists to ensure that no one has to face a diagnosis of PSP alone. The specific services that we provide include a helpline, an information service. We have a number of specialist care advisors around the UK. We produce a wide range of literature and our website has a wealth of information on it. Thanks to our wonderful volunteers, we have a network of around 40 local groups. And then in addition, we organise a wide range of events and also study days for health and social care professionals. Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.